Okay, and uh, we hope that as usual the fan is not a big distraction. <clears throat> so, I'm going to wait a couple of minutes because this one is going to be a, a good one. Um, it's going to be pretty short, I think, a few minutes, but um, it's going to hit you right in the feels. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a reading that I'm doing from my dad's book. There it is. That was also the uh, still from the... Uh, this still for the for the video and I know I gave everybody pretty much no notice so hello Chad he's always it's always like first first lieutenant there captain of the army um, while we wait for a couple of minutes hello Willie Ram I suggest you get yourself a shot of something strong because you may well need it um, my uh, Poison of choice today is grappa, a really good grappa actually, really enjoying it. Um, and of course it's 40% proof, so it's only a little, a little finger or so. Pedro Roja, Carlos Santos Ramos, oh good, you, you boys are, uh, are coming in thick and fast, that's good. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's gonna be a something that you I, I hope those of you that are here are, are gonna enjoy let me know if the sound is okay while we wait for a couple of minutes have a sip of your strong drink because you'll need it in a minute <laughs> or ten <laughs> it's one of the shorter chapters in my dad's book that we're gonna that I'm gonna read from and it starts on Page 75, here we go. Um, I may interrupt a little bit myself, just to, you know, because it's 75 pages in, so he's introduced some characters, some people, and so on, so. Okay, Rapping España can hear you. Okay, good, Carlos. So, well, looks like there's only five of you, but that's all right. Here we go. The accident. One morning, James came to pick me up from the prefabricated house where I was living in the camp with my first wife, Daniela, not that I became a Muslim, I divorced 15 years later, and my two children, Giuseppe Jr. and Aldo, five and three years old respectively. James was um, my dad's driver, like you had to have a driver out there because if you ran somebody over or had an accident, the uh, communal way in which the Nigerians back then in their early 70s dealt with it was to pull the driver out of the car and beat him to death, pretty much regardless of you know who was right, who was wrong. And um, that would just be bad if a white man from a company that's international got beaten to death by the locals, just wouldn't look good. So all the um, expatriates had drivers because shit happens. That's how it works. <clears throat> so, continuing on. James was very emotional, and he told me there had been an accident. While the ten-ton truck was collecting people in town, one of the workers rushed out from a house and tried to jump onto the track while it was moving. He slipped and was run over by the truck that was already full of workers. 
The driver had not even seen him and stopped only because of the screaming people who saw the man fall over and under the truck. He was alive and was taken to hospital. I tried to inquire as to how badly he was injured. Did the truck go over his legs or body? Was he conscious? I got contradictory statements. So I decided to send our chief accountant, Godfrey, to the hospital to inquire. And, uh, yeah. He was a very well-educated man and very religious. I never caught him lying or refraining from a straight answer. And he would tell me the truth I wanted to hear, even if it was an unpleasant truth. One day, a subcontractor had come to me, and before he even greeted me, I started complaining about his late delivery of river sand. Then I saw he had a sad expression, but I thought it was a thrum for whatever excuse he would have brought up on the late delivery. The man instead burst into tears and told me that two days before he had lost his only son to measles. I felt like a moron, and even today, when I remember the desperation in that young father's eyes, tears of sorrow and guilt came into my now old eyes. The accountant, who was in the same office, to my shock and surprise, told the man to stop crying, to be a man. He had to console and provide for his wife, and he was young, and they could have more children. The little boy was with God now. Nothing more could be done, and crying would not bring him back. He went on to say, imagine if your son would have grown up, and you would have spent all your savings to send him to university, as my father did for me. And then, when he was ready to work and provide you with grandchildren and assistance in your old age, a sickness or an accident would have taken him away from you. That would have been a much worse tragedy. I was calm outside, but inside I was in doubt of whether I should punch the accountant first for his insensitive speech, or myself for opening my mouth before listening. The subcontractor stopped crying, composed himself, and thanked the accountant for the good advice, promised he would deliver the sand the next day, and left. I then told the accountant I was not happy with his insensitive speech. This is my father being a little bit euphemistic. If I know him at all, he probably told him about his insensitive speech in a more colorful language. He looked at me straight in the eyes and told me, but it is the truth. You're a foreigner and a white man. You do not understand our life and look at death in a different way. Too compassionate. We have to deal with a harsh life and death every day. We cannot let it bring us down. We have to carry on and pray to God to help us in being strong. He was right, obviously, but I still thought he was an unfeeling prick, and I was a champion moron. That was the reason why I sent the accountant to inquire about the injured man at the hospital. Godfrey came back from the hospital and told me to relax. The man was chatting like a patter to his friends and actually laughing all the time. He commented on how people usually exaggerate and make things worse, than what they are most of the time. Half an hour later, they came to tell us the man was dead, and his closest friend came to me crying and in rage, saying I was obliged to organize the transportation of the body to his village for a proper funeral with his family. Just an interlude here, I don't know whether he mentions this later on, but obviously the man had been drugged up to, his, to the gills because uh, that's what doctors did there when they thought you were gonna die, they just filled you up full of whatever morphine drug and whatever. I tried to calm the young man down, promising I would sort things out. He was upset and quite a hothead, and he told me he'd not believe me, as I was young and only a manager in charge. The bosses in Lagos would not agree to let a truck with close friends leave for a long journey. I told him he was wrong and I would prove it to him. He kept crying and angrily told me repeatedly that I was lying. I lost it. 
I walked up to him and shouted at him and all the others asking, have I ever lied to any of you? I was now also in a rage and ready for a fight for the wrong reasons. An old man said simply, no, you're different. You have never lied to us. We doubt your bosses. This got the young man to stop shouting and he said, that is what I mean. Then he dropped to the ground crying and screaming. I bent down next to him and hugged him, holding him in my own tears. The crowd, on whispered orders from the old man, turned and dispersed, leaving the two of us alone. From my manager and headquarters in Lagos, I got the immediate authorization to send the truck and 14 of the dead men's closest friends to the north for the funeral. The strange thing was that the man who died was a Hausa from the north, and his best friend who had cried in my arms was an Igbo from the south, mortal enemies during the war. I was also worried about what would happen when the family received the body, how would they react? I sent our best driver and a Muslim leader who was respected by all. It was a good choice since when the truck arrived at the village the situation remained tense and the driver and other Muslims had a hard time explaining that indeed it was an unavoidable accident. Nevertheless, the non-Muslims had to sleep in separate quarters and were not treated well but looked upon with suspicion. This, of course, broke the heart of the young Igbo man, but he soon recovered. I was baffled how a young man that was talking and laughing after the accident could be dead within a short period. I did not know then that I would find out the answer from a personal experience a few months later. Morphine. What wonderful shit. And that's the end of it. So, you know, in just that little uh, thing, a couple of dead bodies and so on, and that was pretty standard stuff in... Nigeria back then and uh, yeah there's you know there's some funny stories that one was a bit of a, of a harsh one but you know if you've got kids and you just imagine your kid just died for like two days earlier and some prick manager shouts at you because your fucking delivery of sand is late I don't know what I would have done if I was that guy but um, also appreciate a lot more the, uh, the accountant's actions, you know, then maybe I would have when I was not a Christian at all, didn't know about God. So, um, oh, that's the little story. Let me know how many of you are uh, finding it dusty where you are. <laughs> also, a little bit of an announcement. We're thinking... Of doing uh, an experimental stream probably this Friday with Wooly Ram and a secret ninja um, who um, we might make it a regular thing depending on if the stream works if you guys like it and so on and it would just be the three of us just shooting the shit really talking about whatever and uh, and see what you guys think about it it's been suggested to me that um, the stream, the streams with Bully Ram are uh, the most popular one it, that plays out. I mean, that's not just a suggestion, that, it, that is a fact. Um, which is somewhat mystifying to me because we just kind of ramble on about any old shit. But um, um, the thing is, oh, <laughs> Wooly Ram says that a very sneaky ninja is cutting onions in the shop. <laughs> Yep, some of you might find it dusty over there. Uh, 
I know that you know when I read it the first time, and it's like I, you know, I remember most of these stories. Um, it wasn't the only time that my dad came home with like, what a fucked up story that is, sort of thing. You know, like some guy's kid died, or it's just that's Africa. You know, shit just happens. And um, the thing is, if you have lived in Africa and if you've gone through some of these things. You can appreciate a lot better just humanity in general, and it, it's also one of the reasons why I, um, I pretty much, you know, don't like human beings in general. But I especially dislike the lazy, moronic, cretinous bastards of the so-called first world. That includes a lot of you Americans and a lot of us Europeans, and you know. Because some of the stupid shit that people get up to, it's almost unforgivable. And don't get me wrong, in Africa a lot of stupid shit happens, including stupid shit that kills people. But there is a certain humanity to it, there is a certain... You know, it's rough, it's tough, it's ugly, it's... You don't have the same technology, the same equipment, you don't have the same intelligence level, it's just... It's fucking harsh, but it's real. And, uh, you know, whenever I'm out there or places like that, I generally tend to, like, maybe give something, money or food or something to, like, beggars, homeless people, whatever, random fucker that asks me. In the first world, I'm like, get off your lazy, fucking, drunken, coked-up ass and go get a fucking job. Because, quite honestly, if you're not working in Europe, or in, in America and you know I, I get it you're like no but wait a minute I, I don't really want to fucking sweep streets I was a middle manager yeah yeah I get it you know shit's ugly but if you need to you can be a fucking greeter at Abercrombie and Fitch or whatever right if you need to you can sweep streets street sweepers exist there's always a shortage of garbage man you know so in the first world somebody who's not working is because they don't want to work out there it's just bad you know and to a certain extent I think that makes it more forgivable more human and let's see Dorodo Beiru says I thought Muslims were more accepting of death because of their relationship with the will of God it wasn't about that um, the guy who died was Muslim his friend was not he's Christian and the village that they went to obviously were all Muslims, so they were. Um, well, I don't know that the Igbo guy was Christian. Maybe he wasn't anything specifically, but he wasn't Muslim. <clears throat> um, you know, there's a, literally just about every page in this book is like interesting and and, and worth worthwhile. So, if you want to get the, I think it's only available in paper copy because. It is what it is, but it's about 400 and something pages, 420 something pages. And it's pretty much packed with like very human, and they're all, you know, true stories. There's no, there's no made up shit in here. It's all, um, so I, I thought it would be interesting. I asked the people on Telegram what they thought I should do tonight. And uh, this was the suggestion that had the most 
things and they said, oh, you know, stories from your dad's book or from your own life in Africa that sounds, they enjoy, apparently people enjoy that. So here we go. Let me just quickly catch up with the chat and then maybe I'll, I'll tell you another one. Pedro Rojas says, hard life. We have grown too soft. I don't know if the accountant was too harsh, but my grandparents went through some nasty stuff in their lives. And that advice seems like something they would say. Yeah, the accountant was right. It was true. Molly Ram says, my father had some stories from child, his childhood about South Africa. As a kid, I had no context with which to understand them. Yeah, sounds like crazy. I'm trying not to be a lazy European, Carlos. Good. Chad, America's insulated from death in a way third world countries aren't. Yeah. Wally Ram says, I recommend night shifts. No one bothered the night shift, man. <laughs> oh, actually, I think that's the next story. That, that, that's, um, yeah, that's the next story. So that, that was a pretty harsh one. This one, well, it's still harsh. And it's a bit longer. So what do you say? Let, let's have some votes. Let's have some votes. It's 21 of you. You tell me in the chat. Do you want another little story from the book? Or should you just shoot the shit together? Or I'll tell you something else. Wooly Ram, same here. But uh, on Angola. South Africa was like fancy stuff back then. <laughs> yeah, Angola is a bit even harsher, I think. Wooly Ram might have been the wrong kind of Muslim. No, like I said, guys, that the two friends, one was Muslim, the other one wasn't. The guy that was, like, torn up about it was, um, you know, was not Muslim. Also, this story has got a particular um, slight twist of the knife in it for my dad, who went through it, because I know why he, you know, dropped down and hugged the guy. Uh, when my dad was 19, his best friend died in a plane crash. He was on the Italian swim team. We were, you know, we've always been good swimmers. My grandfather, my grandmother were Italian champions. My dad was a swimmer and his best friend was on the Italian swimming team. Uh, the plane crashed and they all died. And he was like inseparable with him. They were like brothers, you know. So he understood what this guy was going through. So, yeah. Another, another story. Okay, that's... More than 10% of you. Come on, a couple more. Okay. <laughs> Two immortals count like 20 people anyway. So the next, immediately after the story I just read you, is another little story. It's a little bit longer, but... And it's called Sleeping Beauty. Now, I remember distinctly this story from my childhood. I, I mean, I remember what happened. I was, you know, obviously I wasn't involved in the whole thing, but I remember that, the whole event. We also employed people from the Fulani tribe, nomads from the Niger a country that, according to them, had had no rain in the past 12 years. The Fulani dressed in a long tunic with a turban, like the Tuareg, and the color of their tunic was either white, blue, or black. They painted their faces and colored their hair, usually red, using a mixture that I always wondered how they manufactured. The designs on their faces were yellow, blue, and red, and the colors were very bright. They spent hours making themselves pretty, and indeed, both men and women were all slender with delicate features among the young. It was difficult to distinguish between the boys and the girls. All the male adults carried a sword and one or two knives. They would not do work besides herding cattle or being watchmen or security guards. They considered themselves warriors and were employed by almost everybody in Nigeria to safeguard residences, factories and construction sites. 
The reason was that they were not greedy people and did not fall into corruption. I never caught any of them stealing, even if indeed stealing occurred as they fell asleep and thieves went around them, or worse, they were overpowered by the criminals and sometimes wounded or killed. At each of our sites we had one or two of them, where one would be guarding the store and the other patrolling the site, especially when the buildings were completed. The camp houses were occupied by us and we felt we did not need security. They had a leader, Abu Bakr. He was a cool guy, I remember him distinctly, who stayed in a shack about a hundred meters from my house with his wife, who was pregnant at the time of this incident. It was about nine in the evening. We were ready to go to bed when Abu Bakr came to knock on the door. I went outside to investigate. I found him with two other Fulani who were carrying a third one, obviously in bad shape since he was moaning in pain. Bear in mind that we could not communicate and nobody was around to translate. Uh, Abu Bakr didn't speak any English. Uh, my father did speak some English, but that was it. Abu Bakr gestured to his two men to lie the man on the ground. Then he looked at me and pointed to the wounded man. No words. We always communicated in our, in our sign language. I bent down to look at the man. He had a broken leg with a big gaping wound, scratches and abrasions on the various parts of his body. Nobody was talking, not that it would have helped. I looked back at Abu Bakr and he pointed towards the road, then at my car that was parked next to the house and slammed his right fist into his open left hand, then pointed to the injured man on the ground. It was a hit and run. I remember wondering at that time if he was mute. He had never talked to me or anybody else. <laughs> That's true, actually. I never thought about that, but... No, he did say a word. I remember a word. I'll tell you that story later. I went to the house of the managing director, Mr. Valsesia, which was next to mine, and found him already in his pajamas. We would both go to sleep early, since we got up before 6 in the morning and worked hard all day from sunup to sunset, with half an hour rest for lunch, moving from one side to another in the sun or rain. Uncle Vincenzo, as he was affectionately called by all except me, I was too new on the job to call him uncle yet, and I had to show some respect to the man who ended up teaching me a lot about construction in Africa. I told him that I intended to take the injured man to the hospital. Uncle Vincenzo was overly concerned about the accident, and he told me clearly that his worry was that when we reached the hospital, the wounded man could claim I was the man that ran him over in order to gain some money for his misfortune. Such a thing could happen in Lagos, or in many other cities in the world for that matter. But I was sure this was not the case with the Fulani, and I trusted Abu Bakr with my life. I argued my point, and Uncle Vincenzo argued his, saying, How can you be so sure about them? You do not speak their language. You have never seen this man before. He's not even one of our guards. He's a stranger even to them. And he's not of the same group, only of the same tribe. He was right. Nevertheless, we looked him on we loaded him on the back of my company Land Rover and Abu Bakr and I took him to the hospital in Bida. The other two stayed behind. It seemed they were not too keen in going all the way to the hospital where a long queue and bureaucratic procedures could take several hours, with the possibility of being questioned by the police. We arrived at the hospital and carried the man to the emergency room. There the doctor in charge asked me what had happened, then called a male nurse that could speak Fulani and got the same explanation from Abu Bakr. It was also confirmed that the man was indeed a stranger and not part of Abu Bakr's people. They knew nothing about him. Two of his men found the poor guy mangled up on the side of the road and took him to their leader, who came to me for help since I was the only one with transport. The doctor told us he would attend to the man and we had to wait. 
I do not remember how long we waited, but it was several hours, with no cell phone or landline in contact until Uncle Vincenzo or Daniela, that was my mom, to reassure them. We communicated with Lagos headquarters by radios only. There were no telephone lines in Vida that I knew of at that time. The hospital was badly illuminated, had no external lights, was made of several separated buildings, and I could not figure out much in the middle of the night. The doctor finally came back and told us the man was indeed badly injured and needed care. He had a broken leg, one broken arm, and some broken ribs. He said we had to hope and pray, and if he got worse and developed a high fever, we had to bring him back to the hospital. For now, we could take him back to our camp. I was shocked and got angry as usual, and demanded to know why he did not keep the man in the hospital. He looked at me and said, you're new here, aren't you? In this hospital, we do not feed the patients. Friends or relatives bring the food to them. This man, as you said, has no friends or relatives in town, so nobody would feed him and he would die here. The hospital is full and we cannot take special care of him. I argued that we had no facilities to accommodate him and the Fulani had no knowledge of medical care for a man in such bad physical condition. Taking advantage of the male nurse translation, I explained the situation to Abu Bakr, who became as unhappy as I was. I told the doctor I would organize the food and transport and Abu Bakr would designate one of his men to deliver it every day. The doctor looked at me and said, you have decided to save this man. You have to take responsibility and provide for him until he gets well. If you promise you will do what you say, I will keep him here and take care of him. But do not go back on your word or I will come and look for you. It is not hard to find a white man in and around Bida. <laughs> That's true because Bida was like, a, it wasn't even a crossroad. <laughs> it was literally a road, a dirt road. <laughs> we shook hands on it and Abu Bakr and I left for the camp. It was a hot summer night and the windows on the Land Rover were down. As soon as we reached the entrance of the camp, we heard shouting, Barao! Barao! Thieves! Thieves! That's what it meant in Fulani. If there was a break-in on any of the stores on the various sites, the Fulani on guard would shout the word as loud as he could, and from the nearest site the shout was repeated to the next one, and so on. At the same time, all would converge to where the first shout had come from. It was better than the cell phone. Within seconds, the shouts would reach the camp, and I would jump in the car with a shotgun and ammunition and rush towards the shouting, picking up the guards I would find running on the road between the sites. That night, as we were coming back from the hospital, so there was no shotgun. Abu Bakr pointed to a light that was zigzagging through the bushes behind the houses and made a gesture. He pushed his clenched fist back and forth as fast as possible, indicating that I must accelerate. I rushed off the road into the high grass and in the direction of the light. We lost it for a moment in the sea of grass, then picked it up in a spot where the grass was shorter. We were right behind a guy on a motorbike with a couple of bags of cement balanced on the petrol tank in front of him, desperately trying to keep up the speed and not lose control of the bike, but he lost it and fell. Abu Bakr took out two knives from under the sleeve of his tunic and gave one to me as we stopped the car. We both jumped out of the car and on the thief, who with two knives at his throat did not offer <laughs> much resistance. Moments later, help arrived in the form of several Fulani. The thief was tied up, motorbike and cement were taken back to the camp, where I was received by Uncle Vincenzo, still in his pyjamas, and uh, Che cazzo mi hai combinato stavolta? What the fuck did you mess up this time? Welcome. <laughs> he went on and on, telling me that he thought we were under attack by bandits, that had organized the incident just to get me away from the camp so they could ride in and attack him defenseless and without protection. 
I asked, what about the Fulani? He answered, Fulani, 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 you and your shotgun are my protection. What can the Fulani do against an armed gang of bandits? I said, there is no gang attack, Mr. Valsesia. It's just a moron of a thief on a motorbike who stole two bags of cement while the guard was asleep. He replied, I do not care. It is your problem now. It's three in the morning and I have not slept a wink thanks to you. I am tired now and I'm going to bed. Remember, you will never ever leave this camp at night and leave me, your wife and the children alone without protection. Not as long as I am still alive and in charge. <laughs> Mr. Valsesia had a point, by the way. Then the real shit started. The Fulani were arguing with the help Anik Bokuk, who was working for Mr. Vasesia, about whether to call the police or not. I said, no police. By the time we got to the police, we get the police, they do the investigation, we write the statements, etc. It will be the middle of the next day or the day after. Then the Fulani decided that no police meant justice done by us. The thief was tied to a pole on my veranda, and when a couple of Fulani approached him with knives and whips, he became hysterical and started begging me to spare his life. <laughs> I stopped the guards by actually standing in front of the terrorized thief, then called back the cook who had retired to his staff quarters and asked him to come and please translate. This, by the way, was not a solitary occurrence, just so you know. Abu Bakr was adamant the thief had to be punished. I objected, saying no one could harm a tied-up human being on my veranda. Abu Bakr tried to compromise, as he had to save face in front of his people. He proposed that no knife would be used, only the whips, and I said no. I knew the man was so scared by the experience that he would never come back, not even within a hundred miles of that camp. I walked to him, cut the rope that was tying his wrist with Abu Bakr's knife, and told him in no uncertain terms that if he ever came back, he would have to deal with me personally, and that I was not torturing type, but more the seek and destroy type. He went on his knees, apologized, promised I would never see him again, and thanking me repeatedly, left among the complaints and indignant shouts of the Fulani. The most aggressive was the one from the site where the cement was stolen. He was the one inciting the crowd for summary justice, and was sneering at me, probably calling me a sissy in his language. I really did not like him. Abu Bakr had to stand by his people and ask me, though, through the cook, what is the point of them catching the thief if I let them go free? I pointed out to him that he and I caught the thief. And if it was not for Sleeping Beauty, dressed in black and ready to kill a tied-up idiot, the cement would not have been stolen. They could all be at their work perched and I would be asleep. Abu Bakr got the point and looked at his guilty man, who did not show any sign of embarrassment. He first inquired what Sleeping Beauty meant, and at that explanation everybody laughed, except him and Abu Bakr, who I think was as pissed off with him as I was. Then the arrogant prick came close to me and talked too close to my face. I looked at the cook who translated that he said he never slept and I could not insult him and call him Sleeping Beauty. I told the cook to ask him what he was going to do if the next night I went to his side and found him asleep. The cook translated that the little prick, who was more or less my size and at 62 kilos I am far from being a big guy, simply replied, I will kill you. My anger went away. I smiled and told him, see you tomorrow, Sleeping Beauty. Everybody left and I went to bed for half an hour as the sun was rising. I had not slept. I had adopted a crippled man at a distance. I had upset my friend Abu Bakr, pissed off my manager, and all that I wanted to do was to be a good guy. I could not blame Uncle Vincenzo for his reasonable fear. 
In Lagos, some houses were attacked by gangs of more than 20 people. Guards were killed or maimed for life, women raped. That night, despite the fact that I was dead tired, I got up at 2 in the morning. While I was walking to the door, Daniela said, Pepe, my family diminutive name, be careful, do not kill him, please. <laughs> she understood. Typical wife concern. She was more worried about Sleeping Beauty than me. That's true, they, they do that. It's fucking irritating. I opened the door and Abu Bakr was just in front of it waiting for me, despite the fact that I had not told anybody else, besides Daniela, that I was intending to visit Sleeping Beauty that very night. We walked a few kilometers to the site. If I had used the car, the other guards would have heard, heard us coming and probably would have alerted Sleeping Beauty. We reached the opposite site where Sleeping Beauty was and crawled next to the guard who was awake. He got a fright, but before he could raise the alarm, Abu Bakr showed himself and motioned to him to keep silent. He followed us to Sleeping Beauty's side, and we found him sound asleep on a bench. In front of Abu Bakr and the other Fulani, I took his sword away, clamped his head between my legs, took down his trousers, and smacked his naked backside hard and fast with my open hand like he was a naughty child. Then I let him go. And with my hand on my knife, I watched to see if he was going to go for the sword on the ground. He did not. We walked back to the camp with Abu Bakr knowing the man was really a useless big-mouthed prick and me knowing Abu Bakr was an honest and faithful friend. The next day, Sleeping Beauty arrived at lunchtime to join the others for some food. When he was 200 meters away, they were already laughing. And when he arrived, a few of them stood up, stuck their bums up in the air, slapped themselves on their backsides and laughed their heads off. Sleeping Beauty collected his prey the same day and left, despite the fact that I would not have fired him. The embarrassment was too much for him, and he was now the laughing stock of all of them. No man would have been his friend or trusted him. The women, especially Abu Bakr's wife, were also laughing at him and cheering for me. Then I felt great, but today, when I think back, I felt sorry for him and ashamed of myself. I should have punched the daylights or the nightlights out of him when he told me he would kill me. It would have been a physical punishment for his arrogance, the scar would have healed, and he could have carried it with pride. Instead, I scarred him for life inside, forever damaged his image as a warrior, and that young man had nothing else in his life. Shame on me. Shame on me. Uncle Vincenzo never knew anything about the whole affair. A couple of months later, Abu Bakr came to see me with the man discharged from the hospital. He was still walking with the help of a crutch. He thanked me, spent a few days with the Fulani, then left. He said he wanted to go back to his country, the Niger. The Niger state. I hope he made it. That's it. Okay, let me catch up with your uh, with your chat there. Ah, uh, where are we? story about night shifts in Africa. There you go. Sounds like the Chinese concept of a life debt. That is, you save the man you're responsible for. Well, pretty much you are. This story comes off like a modern Wilbur Smith novel. It's not a novel. That shit happened regularly. I, I remember once we, <laughs> we had, and that's the, the, the story I'm just going to summarize where there's a, it's in there, the full story. I remember we, we occasionally had visitors, you know, there, there were people that were just like, I don't know, going through Africa, whatever. Any white people that came near there would stop off by our house because there was only three houses with like white people in it. Ours, Alsazias, and the guys who I think were working for Costain. There was a house about a couple hundred meters away from us. And uh, 
so there was this uh, I think they were Dutch doctor or lady or whatever there was a couple of them anyway and they'd just come in and we'd, we'd invite anybody you know that would offer them dinner or whatever so they'd just come in my dad was in the shower and um, as he was just coming out of the shower again you heard barao barao you know thief thief so my dad grabbed the shotgun and a and a, a belt of shotgun ammunition and he was in his underpants and he just like came running out of the of the of the bedroom jumped over the little coffee table where everybody was sat around ran out of the house got into the land rover and drove off and now the lady that had been sitting there with all her friends and whatever had just asked my mom so what does your husband do and then that's what happened <laughs> and to be fair to her i don't remember if she was english or, or dutch or whatever but uh, she definitely had the kind of english aplomb because uh, she said something to the effect of well i don't know what your husband does yet but looks very exciting <laughs> so you know and um, and by the way Wilbur Smith no he just made that the guy I, I don't like his fucking books because of Wilbur Smith my brother and I and my mother and my father spent pretty much every hunting trip that we went on with my dad digging through the fucking stomach contents of an ostrich whenever we shot an ostrich we're digging away in the stomach of the ostrich this is in the middle of the fucking desert where you don't have a tap to clean yourself with just a little bit of water that you know it's drinking water so you kind of save it as much as you can because you might be out there a week too if the car breaks down till you die and why because my dad had read in some Wilbur Smith novel that you know some guy shot an ostrich opened its stomach and there was a fist-sized diamond or something because you know ostriches eat shiny stones which is kind of true you know we found tiger's eyes and shit like that but never any diamonds so there you go and Wilbur Smith just you know, he's a, he exaggerates shit, let's put it that way. So some of his stuff, I suppose, is good. If you've got no experience of Africa, then it's fair enough. But, uh, yeah, not my favorite author because, again, I've lived there, kind of been through some of the stuff that is mentioned in, in his books or equivalent stuff and, you know, doesn't hold up. When you know the real story, the fake story doesn't quite... Uh, do it for you. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed the uh, two little stories, and um, I think I'm gonna call it a night. Although it's, you know, I'm not even hit an hour, and I might see you all this Friday with uh, Wooly Ram if he's about. I think he told me that he should be, and um, possibly a secret ninja, set of acantus type, who wishes to remain anonymous at this time. Possibly, we'll see. So that's it. If you've got any comments or questions, shoot them now in the next couple of minutes. Oh, I finished my shot of grappa. There, the last little drop. Um, I hope there's no delay because I don't think there is. Hope not. But if there is a delay on the on the stream, let me know as well. Okay, two, 14 thumbs up. We, we haven't got the thumbs down, dude, yet. Ah, there you go. Drew Beru says, I have no experience of Africa and enjoy them. That's fair enough. You know, it's uh, I suppose it's, it's a pretty easy read. And yeah, if you don't know anything about Africa, it probably gives you some kind of a flavor of it. Um, 
that's fine. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not saying he's a shitty writer or anything. He's, I don't particularly enjoy his books just because of the life I've led, sort of thing. This was nice. It's like bedtime story with Mr. Kirkin. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. My, when my boy gets old enough to, to hear some stories, I can read him Grandpa's book. <laughs> How applicable is surviving in Africa to the post shit the fan European? Uh, very Europe, Europe, North America, very applicable, very applicable. Um, maybe, maybe that's the stream we'll do. That's a good point. So, Woody Ram, the stream we're gonna do on Friday is gonna be hypothetical role playing game in Minecraft or Top Secret or Traveler. What happens in a real zombie apocalypse? I think. That would be a good stream. You know, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll discuss whether it's like fast zombies, slow zombies, what kind of shit the fan, you know, can have a bunch of different scenarios. You, you, you're a gamer. I've played the pen and paper role-playing games and they, um, the Secret Ninja has uh, played a few video games and uh, introduced to a very brief game of, of Traveler, so. What kind of grappa are you drinking? The one I've tasted was disgusting. Ah, grappa is a little bit like vodka and tequila. If you buy the cheap shit that you find in your average booze shop, it's, it's, it's gross. It's like raw alcohol. But this one is a yellowish uh, Italian-made grappa. It doesn't have any specific name, I think. Um, and it's got a slightly flavored. Um, so it's probably made with like all the grapes, because I don't know if you know or not, but grappa is made with the leftover grapes that you make the wine from. Um, so these would probably be yellow grapes that you make, um, you know, some kind of um, Zinfandel probably, or some sweet white wine. And uh, very good, very tasty. So you, you kind of, with grappa, it's like you kind of have to get the right grappa, or somebody who makes it and knows what they're doing, then they, they can make it really good. Yes, indeed, Woolly Ramp, the Apocalypse, Part 2, Surviving After the Fall. <laughs> Tyler Suryani says, how are the olives? Coming along nicely, apparently. Um, I had a quick chat with the grumpy old man with next door, who's a, who's a saint, that dude. Um, he came to look at them and he said, oh, it's good. You know, there's a bug going around that's eating the olives, but you don't seem to have it. It's, that's good. Then I said, look, man, you gotta help me out to find out some people to like hire to like when it's time to collect them, because I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And he just laughed and goes, What the fuck you need help from people to collect? I said, I don't know how to do this shit. He goes, I've got the like, you know, you, you need the tarps. I've got the tarps, I can lend you some tarps. Like, yeah, but don't you need like a machine to like shake the tree and shit? And he goes, I got two machines, you can use one of mine. What the fuck you wanna hire people for? Now the guy, honestly, he's just he's just salt of the earth dude, and I feel terrible because I was saying to, to the loyal henchman, he's the only guy I think in my life that's given me more than I've given him. I, I was like, fuck, I need to do something for this old dude and I, I don't know what, you know, I can't do it. He's got everything. He fucking knows how to do everything. It's, I don't know what the fuck to do, you know, just bought some oil from him. I'm gonna buy some more oil from him, but I don't fucking know how to, you know. I don't know, I need to think up of something to do for the old dude. Alright, but thanks for the question and they yeah, I think 
Woolly Ram remind me Friday night about 9.30 or so Rome time we're going to have an apocalypse talk some of it will be applicable to real life if you use your imagination but of course it's all hypothetical right uh, Pew and Bear says will you sell ship abroad the olive oil in the future or do we have to come to get it well, if you come get it, it's a lot easier for me because I don't know what the procedure is for exporting food stuff. I'm sure there's a bunch of fucking forms and honest to God, I'm done with the forms. So, what I suggest, Pion Bear, if I remember right, you're Polish, which might mean you're in Europe, I don't know. You know, the Polish have got ancient traditions of smuggling. So, think of me as a more handsome, good-looking, smarter, and nicer Jabba the Hutt and you can be Han Solo and smuggle a whole bunch of oil. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> Pedro says, ah, nice. Here we call it aguardente, burning water. Ah, aguardente, see. We use a copper still to make it and, and to the wine to improve Oh, add it to the wine to improve its kick. Oh God, I would never do that. You ruin the wine and the grappa. Friday's good. Cool. Yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm kind of excited now. Now I want to talk about zombie apocalypses. I think we'll get through the slow zombies very quickly. So, uh, yeah. And Okay, so we're going to have to make it realistic. Want participation from the chat, you know, so that you can... You have to think about your specific situation, right? I'm kind of a rural Italy. Woolly is in like fucking zombie central Tel Aviv or something. Um, with no way out. You know, it's like escape from New York. It's just escape from Israel. <laughs> that, ooh, the very thought scares me. <laughs> so yeah, I think Friday will be a good one. So mark that in your diaries, ladies and gents. And... Uh, I'll see you then. Until then, good night, everybody. Thank you for joining me as usual. And we are on track for the digital Kurganit. So probably within the first, uh, I don't know if it'll be the first week of August because we're already quite deep in it. Probably towards the middle of the second week, um, I think the digital Kurganit will go live. It's going to start out with 13 videos, I think. And then it'll, the, the, we will add four videos a week, um, all things going well. Which means you would get fucking, I don't know, 160 something videos within the year. Videos range in length from about 15 minutes to an hour 10. So on average, call it 35, 40 minutes, something like that. So probably a good maybe 100 hours of, of video. And we're still checking on the price because we've got to hit a certain price point to cover the costs and all that. Um, but we're going to definitely give a special discount to the first 100 people that sign up. So if you're following me on Telegram, the people who follow me on Telegram, they get first. Um, they're going to be told about first so that they can sign up first. And then... I'll mention it here of course but so if you want to be you know if you want to be one of the first hundred I suggest you 
get into the Telegram group if you're not already in there. Because those guys are going to get a, a heads up a little bit before everybody else. Um, okay, that's basically it. Thank you all. Buenas noches. Oh, Bear, smuggling sounds nice. If not myself, I have a friend who would drive to Turin. Maybe you could pick up something up. Yes, Pewan Bear. That's, that's what we, we like to hear. You, you know, you know where to find me. Ping me an email. <laughs> Just put a heading, something like Jabba the Hunt <laughs> or something. I don't know. Okay, guys, thank you very much and uh, have a good night.